0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: In light of the mission of the Technology and Society Forum, I can think of only a few other areas of emerging technology, perhaps AI, that is more important to inform the public about so that an informed democratic process for its use can be created and maintained. The potential uses of this technology across many areas of our lives And its potential to change our everyday lives is vast. I'm delighted to welcome back tonight's speaker, Jennifer Kahn. Ms. Kahn is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and has been a regular feature writer for the New Yorker, National Geographic, and Wired, among others. Her work has been selected for the Best American Science Writing series four times and has explored subjects ranging from the National Self-Help Movement in Silicon Valley to the challenge of identifying and creating child psychopaths. Since 2009, she has taught in the magazine program at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and was a visiting Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton in 2015. Her 2016 TED Talk on CRISPR and Gene Drives has been viewed more than 1.4 million times and was named one of the top TED Talks of 2016 by conference organizers. I will guide Jennifer through a few questions and then leave ample time for the audience questions on this topic. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Kahn to the Commonwealth Club. Thanks. Welcome.
2: Thanks, Gerald. Yes.
1: So, um, Jennifer, you and I had a, a good conversation about this, and we kind of set this up, and I want to follow how we laid this out. So what I would like you to do is, you know, go in and give us sort of the core lay of the land to find the terms for us so that we can all get on the same page.
2: That's fair. Um, First, most basic thing, the technology I'm going to be talking most about tonight is this one you've probably heard of called CRISPR. It stands for something complicated, which is clustered, regularly interspaced palindromic repeats. Please forget that I even said that because it doesn't matter. Um, but it just describes what the original gene looked like when they found it in bacteria. But since then, it's actually come to mean something different, um, which is a tool that was developed. You know, people found this sort of thing in bacteria, and then they were able to turn it into a tool that could edit genes. Um, and the big thing about that was before this tool was developed, um, back in, I think it was 2012, um, for the first time, we'd been able to edit genes. Like, you guys probably know this. We'd been editing stuff in mice and everything for a while. But the thing I certainly didn't realize when I started writing about this was that it was incredibly hard to do this. So it would be a student's, you know, PhD thesis to do a single, um, you know, edit of one gene in a mouse and then see what that did. So the thing about CRISPR is that it made it so much faster, so much easier, so much cheaper, almost anybody could do it. And so one of the really powerful things it did was made it possible to, you know, you could now just edit genes, see what they did. You could do it in a couple days instead of a couple years. Um, So that was a big difference.
1: Okay. Now, uh... I know there's gene editing, gene drive, gene, so can you, you break those down for us?
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we'll have to talk a little bit more about it as we go. Uh, but so, you know, actually one thing I should make clear, there's an interesting thing about, um, gene editing versus say, you know, GMOs when you hear about GMO food. Um, so gene editing just means editing a gene. You know, every gene has DNA or sorry, you know, every cell for instance has DNA in it. And so if you want to change those letters like a word processor, right, changing the letters that are in the DNA, that's just gene editing. Um, GMOs nowadays refer specifically to introducing kind of a foreign gene um, so if you take, you know, you want to have a tomato that is resistant to frost, and you take a gene from a flounder, which has a thing that is resistant to frost, and you stick it in the tomato, they actually did this, it was called a fish tomato, it didn't really work very well, nobody bought it. Um, <laughs> but they tried it, this was back in the 90s. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, that's GMOs. These days we've kind of moved, we still do some of that, it's still, you know, possible, but, um, I think the conversation has really moved just to this gene editing, because with CRISPR, Um, There's often not as much of a need to introduce things, you know, from, it's called transgenic, from other organisms. So you can just edit the genes themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, as I understand gene drive, (laughs) that's a little bit more complicated. Can you give us that one.
2: Yeah, sorry, you can tell I'm trying to take this step by step so it's because it is complicated and they all use the word gene for some reason. Um so a gene drive is different still. So a gene drive is basically just something that helps spread a trait all the way through a population. So if you have a bunch of mosquitoes, you know, millions of mosquitoes and you want them, you know, say you want them none of them to be able to transmit malaria, right? So if you have you know, what, gene editing just means you can take a single mosquito, you change it up, and look, that, that one mosquito can't transmit malaria. That doesn't do a lot of good because now you've got one mosquito that can't transmit malaria, but you've still got 10 bazillion that can, right? So then, how do you get them all to not transmit malaria? It turns out there's a thing called a gene drive that um, it just basically ensures that a particular trait will get inherited. So if you release, say, 1,000 of these modified mosquitoes, it can't get malaria. And if they successfully manage to breed with all the other mosquitoes out there, it basically means that all the offspring will not be able to pass on malaria. So eventually that will actually spread throughout the entire population.
1: So if I understand you correctly, if someone used gene drive on a human being, <laughs> then the same thing would happen to their posterity. Is that not what are
2: saying? <laughs> no, about? that's a great question. So yeah. the thing about gene drives is that they really if in practice they only work in things that reproduce really quickly. Um so like, you know, mice and mosquito, insects, that sort of thing. You know, in people, in theory we could put a gene drive in a person, you know, but we're people with agency. So it's, you know, you'd have people wait, you wait twenty years, then they you have to marry someone else, you know, that like then that trait gets passed. I mean, it would just take forever. And by that I mean it takes so long. By that point, you could just, if you saw it happening, you could stop it. You could undo it, probably. So we probably don't need to worry about it happening in us, in elephants, in other stuff. Um, but definitely stuff that reproduces kind of quickly works.
1: Okay. So uh, one other question I want you to, to deal with is uh, uh, how much do we know versus how much we think we know? Yeah. So as I understand it, uh, you can change one thing in my genetic code. And it could affect thousands of things in my life. Yeah. So what gives us the confidence that we kind of know what we're doing in light of that?
2: Oh, I, I don't think we have that confidence oh, okay. at this point. Um, that's part of why you guys have. Should I go to the, the, the CRISPR babies at this point?
1: Why? Please do. <laughs>
2: Um, So you guys have probably heard this was a a big thing that, um, you know, made a lot of news in the in the past six months or so. Um, There was a guy, uh, a scientist named He Jiankui in uh, China, who somewhat unilaterally, there's some debate over whether there was, you know, support from the government on this or not, um, created um, basically, you know, used in vitro fertilization. But within that edited, you know, a single gene in these, you know twin girls who ended up being born. Um, and so researchers had been doing that in embryos in the past, but you know, certainly not taking them to term. They were just doing it to sort of see if it could be done. Um, so he was the first one who actually you know, created children that went out in the world. Um, and so one of the, the particular gene he modified was called CCR5. And he modified it because if there's people out there with a natural mutation in that gene, and they're resistant to HIV, they just don't get the virus at all. Um, and so that would seem like a good thing. You know, why not do it? Um, but there's a couple problems with it. Um, in his case, well, there's several problems, but in his case, you know, one practical problem is it's not clear that his experiment really worked. Um, so at least one of the twins has something they called the mosaicism where the altered gene ended up in some of the cells, but not some of the cells. Um, and that's not automatically terrible. Like, you know, a lot of us have some sort of mosaicism. Um, but it, what what it means is that we don't even know. Like, is that kid going to be protected? Like, what's going to happen from that? No idea. Um, the other thing is that uh, we're only, you know, be now beginning to understand all the things that a, a mutation in CCR5 might affect. So it might really just confer this, you know, wonderful immunity to HIV. But a recent thing they found was that... Um, People in the world who happen to have this mutation are 20% more likely to die before age 76 um, than people who don't have it. So that's not great to bestow on these kids. Um, also, they seem to be there's some inclina- some indication that they're more susceptible to influenza um, and West Nile. Uh, you know, so it's gonna be trade-offs that make it very tricky when you do this. And in his case, the really significant thing is that when you do this in an adult human in something called gene therapy. It's different. You just do it in the adult human. But he did it in what's called the germline, and I can explain more about that if you want. Um, but the idea is when you put it in the germline, it means that not only are those babies going to have it, but when they have kids, it'll get passed on, and when they have kids, it'll get passed on. So this changes there. there. Um, so that's a pretty big ethical deal. Um, so there's a lot of questions about whether there was enough consent and also what it means to do this in, you know, you're doing it in embryo, so they can't consent to this change. So you'd think we want to be pretty... Pretty darn sure what the effect's going to be before we do it. So
1: okay, so let's let's dig behind that a little bit further because there were a host of
2: ethical, legal.
1: I'm not even sure how you explain these issues because, uh, as we discussed, the New York Times did an article on this, following this, and and exposed that certain uh, professors from Stanford were cooperating, counseling. Uh, whatever with this Chinese scientists and that uh, they had a set of rules around uh, scientific sharing and these kinds of things that really weren't visible to the public. Yeah. Wasn't clear. They were being regulated. Wasn't clear who was enforcing it. Uh, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of that?
2: Absolutely. Um, so the reality is that there really isn't regulation around this at this point, uh, in 2017, the National Academies of Science and Engineering and Medicine tried actually to come up with kind of a draft thing, you know, like, oh, these are guidelines we recommend, you know, you don't do this or that. Um, and then unfortunately, uh, at the conference, Hei Jiangkei said, oh no, I followed, I followed all those guidelines. So in, apparently these guidelines were so vague that he somehow was able to kind of think, no, no, I'm following all the procedures correctly. So, uh, just, Two days ago, there was another meeting of not just the National Academies, but it's now an international consortium. And the idea is they're now trying to create a really much more comprehensive and binding, um, you know, set of things that regulators can consult, that scientists can consult, that clinicians can consult when they're thinking about doing any of this stuff. The problem, as I'm sure you're anticipating, is really who's going to enforce this. This is a, a global thing. It's honestly, you know, I'll say gene drive is actually kind of hard to do. But, you know, editing an embryo, it's really not that hard. You know, it's not that hard. It's hard sometimes to have them be edited and be viable to survive. Um, but really, this is this is not hard. And something that happened after Hei Joenke did his experiment um, was a, a ton of, you know, he went into, he somehow disappeared. But then a ton of clinics were writing him emails saying, boy, congratulations. This sounds great. When can we get access to this? You know, and, you know, so this is from, you know, the UAE, like, um, the Middle East, I mean, like, people all over are looking into this. So, you know, if this international consortium comes up with these, you know, these guidelines, how are they going to police it? Um, What's to stop anybody from just doing it? You know, know, if you're getting national funding, maybe you can't do it. But if you're a private clinic, so...
1: (laughs) Okay, so we actually can't, we don't know how we would enforce the rules even if we had them. Is that pretty much the
2: case? Yeah, I mean, we're you know, we're trying to set out good rules, and hopefully people will mostly follow them. But I feel like at this point, um, it's probably something that's coming. Um, you know, the one thing I will say is that, uh, something just to bear in mind, like you think about doing this, the reality is that it takes um, a long time for people to grow up, right? So if we're talking about doing this in humans, how do we know if it's been a success or what the possible side effects are, Right. So normally what we do before we do these experiments is we do a million experiments in mice, we might even do them in primates. And we do a lot of observation to see, you know, in individual cells, we do all kinds of stuff. And then when we're pretty sure that it's safe, you know, that's when we might try it in a person, right? It's never going to be 100% certain, but that's when you try it. Um, But so if you just start this experiment now... I mean, we literally just have to wait until these twins grow up, and then, well, what happens? Are they going to end up dying before 76? You know, let's see. So it's actually going to take a very long time to get feedback if the way we're experimenting is sort of experimenting on humans.
1: Fantastic. Um, So I'm going to go through a a couple of areas here that uh, people are saying this should be applied to. Mm. And uh, I think you actually wrote a piece, a cover piece, but I I subscribe to Wired Magazine, and I must have had this magazine at least – Uh, a month before I took a close look at it. And it wasn't until later that I realized the whole point of this was this cow has no horns. (laughs) Now, since I live in San Francisco, I don't see cows that often, so I I probably (laughs) would have missed this. But uh, there are people who are convinced that the next revolution in agriculture that's going to feed the 9 to 10 billion people on the planet uh, cannot happen, you know, without this. So give me your view on, on this. Is this true? or?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say is, you know, there's plenty of things we can do that don't involve genetic, you know, engineering or gene editing. Um, you know, like, for instance, you know, we can make cows that have more muscle mass using genetic engineering, or we could just eat less meat you know so we, it's not like we have to genetically engineer our way out of some of the holes we're in um but that said um you know we are facing uh into climate change and you know that's going to affect um us in the US probably a bit probably what we'll experience is you know higher food prices um but globally it can be a real disaster um you can have starvation starvation can lead to riots um, you can end up with, uh, you know, vast climate refugees, um, you know, fleeing the starvation. So that can be extraordinarily destabilizing. And so, you know, if you think about it, you're going to end up having to, you know, if you're kind of temperamentally inclined to not like the idea of mucking around with gene editing crops, you're going to have to weigh that against some of the other um, risks that, you know, we might be facing if we don't, you know, if you sort of really have an ideological objection to creating, you know, maybe, you know, a a wheat that is, you know, uses less water, um, you know, or something like that. Um, so that, that's, I think, one of the, the tough ones that people are going to have to reckon with for sure.
1: Okay. And as I recall, the, one of the, f- the first sort of agriculture revolution came with chemicals in terms of pesticides mm-hmm. and fertilizers. And we now have all manner of side effects and externalities uh, yeah. based on that. Uh, like in California we have uh, all kinds of issues with the water table in terms of phosphate in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you imagine that we may have some externalities if uh, this was widely applied in agriculture?
2: Well, so actually, there's two interesting points here. One is that we have a real habit as human beings to think about the externalities, to worry about what's going to happen with new things. You know, the next technology, we think, oh, I don't know if I should trust this. But then, as you're saying, there's all this devastation that's happened because of the overuse of pesticides. Um, and so we, but that's the devil we know. You know, so we tend to kind of think, oh, well, pesticides, you know, that we don't love them, but that's okay. But the idea of like this mucking around with genes, you know, I don't know, I don't like that. Um, but that said, um you know, obviously, this is stuff that you want to, um, test first. You want to make sure, for instance, if you're, you know, doing the GMO thing where you introduce a foreign gene, you know, a thing you would want to make sure of is what if you introduced a peanut gene? You know, what if that might cause an allergy or something like that? So there's, there's stuff you definitely want to be mindful of that way. Um, one of, interestingly, one of the, one of the interesting advantages of CRISPR actually, um, I had a scientist explain this to me and I never really thought of it this way, which is that when we crossbreed things, you know, we're often so- trying to select for a particular gene. You know, like you know, for years, people have been crossbreeding their tomato plants to get tomatoes that are a little bigger, a little sweeter, something else, right? We just do that. Um, what people don't realize is that when you're doing that, you may be selecting for that gene, but you're also dragging along a ton of other genes. It's very messy. It's really haphazard. Um and the, the difference is we don't see it because we don't sequence those tomatoes. Like, we, we don't know. We, we, if we looked at them, we would see a ton of junk that would appall us, you know, if we actually saw it in this deliberate gene editing. So what we have now is this technology that allows us to very precisely say, let's just change these, you know, we know that this kind of tomato is a lot sweeter and it has this particular you know, series of letters. Let's just put those in. Um, and it's actually a lot more precise and a lot less messy. So that's not to say there are no externalities, but it's also funny because there's, you know, there's all this other stuff that somehow just because we're not aware of it um, doesn't bother us. And this one we have, you know, the, de- the alarming part is that we're conscious of it. Yeah, so, so. So,
1: so this touches on this point we discussed about whether, you know, people got so upset about gen- gen- genetically modified foods and mm. they don't eat that. And, and your opinion is similar to what you just said is we should look at these things differently. That there 's not the same and people should not be. Well, there's a question as to whether they should be spooked as they have been on. Could you say more about that?
2: For sure. So one thing I'll say about GMO foods is that, you know, what really happened from the get-go due to Monsanto, which is, as far as I know, every scientist who works on this really hates because they just completely screwed it up for everybody. Um, Something that was just a technological or scientific breakthrough um, about, you know, you can turns out you can edit the genes of crops and maybe make them healthier, maybe make them something else. It got completely tied up in um, big ag, basically which, you know, and, and sort of this, the globalization of it, which has real legitimate problems. Um, you know, monocultures have real problems. And some of the ways that the gene editing is being used, you can say for sure have real problems, right? And one of the big things Monsanto uses, um, you know, genetically modified crops for is not to make it better for us. You know, it's not to make it healthier for us. It's not to make it more delicious. Um, it's to make it work with their Roundup, you know, herbicide right that sort of it kills the weeds and so then they make these they edit the seeds so that the seeds you know can be used with their particular herbicide which of course they also want to sell right so that's the kind of stuff that i think really you know has justifiably given it kind of a bad name in people's minds um but just you know the actual editing of these crops um you know there's nothing inherently bad about that, and especially if we do due diligence, you know, and mm-hmm. make sure it's, you know, and especially if we try to, There's actually, I was just talking today to a wonderful person in the UK, um, who's basically making blueberry tomatoes. Um, she found a way to make tomatoes that have, they're, they're, they look like giant blueberries, and they have incredibly high levels of anthocyanins, these really wonderful antioxidants that you get in blueberries and blackberries. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, is never going to hit the shelves. Um, we're never going to see it. She's she's enjoying it. You know, she hopes people might want to grow it in their garden, which they can't right now because it, you know, it's not it's prohibited basically. Um, you know, but you could argue that there's probably not a lot of danger in that, and yet all these other things have been sort of shut down um, because of the big ag concerns. So.
1: Great, great. Um, so maybe you can give us a, a, a little update on this. And uh, I tried to find this out myself, but uh, there's some debate, I guess, between Cal and. MIT, the the patent, (laughs) patent. but who, can you give us the latest as we understand that? Oh, my
2: God. I'm not even sure I've kept up with the latest, but um, uh, so the very broad outline is – uh, the people who actually discovered um, or created the original CRISPR gene editing tool um, are Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley and a woman named Emmanuel Charpentier, who's in Europe, um, and their team. And so they actually, you know, they were the ones who, you know, people for years had been thinking, oh, I wonder if we could use CRISPR to edit genes. No one had managed to make it work. They actually made it work. Um, some folks, this primarily this guy named Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute, um, were the first to make it work in human cells. So then there was ensued a big dispute over was this an obvious step in which case the people at Berkeley deserved, you know, all the, all the prize basically because they just did a trivial follow on step or was it a distinct and new step? Um, and therefore then they would get all the things. So as far as I know, um, that's still being hashed out in an extremely fine grained way, Mm -hmm. um, as to who gets exactly what piece of the pie. The only good news I think for all of us is that, um, Ultimately, none of this is, you know, the, the licenses for this are, are sort of pennies. You know, they're, they're really neither institution plans to kind of hold this thing hostage and charge, you know, thousands of dollars to use the technology. I mean, it's already out there. Everybody's using it. Um, so it's just these very tiny licensing fees. Um, but there is, you know, everyone's kind of squabbling for prestige, for Nobel positioning, for all kinds of stuff.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so let's move on to the application of this technology for for a disease an individual might have. And um, my uh, son uh, uh, carries what's called sickle cell trait.
2: Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which he got from me, mm. where I got from my father's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means is that if, if he marries someone else who has the sickle cell trait, they have a f- I think 50% chance of creating a child who has sickle cell anemia. hmm but recently, uh, it seems like a young lady was treated for this and was yeah. cured. So, yeah. can you talk about individual treatment and what there seems to be going on here?
2: Yeah, and this is you know um, this is a really great hope, um, which is you know sickle cell is one of these diseases that it's um, it's a monogenic disease, which means that it's caused by a single mutation in a single gene. You know, so it's just one imagine all the letters in your DNA and there's like one letter that somebody got wrong and that's it. Um, so it's, you know, it's a tiny thing and yet immensely powerful. And, you know, the disease is awful. I mean, you know, you, it's very painful. Um, you know, you get strokes, um, you die early. It's really, um, it's just an awful thing to, um, to inherit. Um, and it, uh, tends to be more common in people of African descent. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a huge problem and so far very little can be done beyond, um, bone marrow transplants. So my understanding of this woman who was just treated, they took out the, um, you know, bone marrow from her and then they, you know, take those cells and they edit them. They edit that one letter. So now it's the right letter. That's literally all they have to do. It's just like fixing, you know, you wrote, you type T-H-A and you want to type T-H-E. That's all you do. Um, you put it back in. And so then they, you know, put her bone marrow back in. And the bone marrow is what creates the blood cells, so the, you know instead of creating the broken, you know sickle shaped blood cells, it now will just create normal blood cells, and so it's really, it's an extraordinary thing if it works, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and so there are a range of uh, kind of diseases like this, right, that people are uh, looking at, and and I was just sharing with you before that um, some of these treatments uh, can cost millions oh, yeah. of, of dollars so uh before we think we're just gonna you know <laughs> a curie thing can, can you give us an idea of w- what these companies seem to be doing and what they think we should be maybe paying for this
2: well you know what's interesting is that um my understanding of the the treatments that are costing the most these days um are mostly cancer treatments uh And so there's a lot of discussion over that and whether insurers are going to cover that. I think an insurer recently did just agree to cover a very, you know, inexpensive multi-million dollar one. Um, but that is mostly cancer treatments. I mean, an interesting way to think about it is another disease that could really benefit from, um, gene therapy is cystic fibrosis. And so if you think of having all the costs of having to manage someone with cystic fibrosis over their life, um, it's, you know, it's extraordinary, not to mention the loss of life, the loss of productivity, everything else. Um, so, you know, in that, you know, what if you could, I mean, for one thing you could put conceivably, um, you know, this is actually where germline engineering in theory, you know, unlike what happened with the twins, what if you could actually just stop that, you know, embryo from like ever developing it or give gene therapy to an infant and then they never have any of these problems, right? So you don't have to wait till the person is an adult even to treat them. Um, so, you know, that's actually a pretty compelling argument and probably I would think an insurer, an insurer would actually back that, um, you know, compared to the lifelong cost mm-hmm. of maintaining mm-hmm. someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I mean, that's my hope, certainly.
1: Okay. Uh, one more thing before we leave the babies. Um,
2: <laughs> the babies.
1: As I understand it, there are companies in L.A. now who are advertising that they can give your baby – on
2: here. Oh, God, are there? Are, I'm
1: thinking, yeah, I uh, thinking uh, whether this is true or not, because, you know, this is a free enterprise system yeah. in this country, and people would charge you for anything. But uh, is, is this... What are these people doing? Do you understand what these people are doing? Is anything?
2: I will confess I hadn't heard about that, but I will say that um, uh, one thing that actually is possible is, you know, we've been doing IVF to select um, for things, so presumably you could, if they think they really have a strong genetic correlation with a particular trait, um, you know, height or blonde hair, whatever it is, you know, that's all they have to do because, you know, they, they already do that. They do pre-implantation diagnosis, right, on these, um, you know, for in vitro fertilization. So it's not that hard to, like, you know, look at, you know, the embryo and sort of see what it's got, you know, check out the ones you don't want, keep the ones you do. Um, you know, I guess I will say that most traits aren't that simple so they might be able to select for blonde hair but i don't think they're going to be able to select for intelligence or wit or you know i don't know i mean there's many things that they're not going to be able to just sort of you know not, they can't sort of promise you this stuff um mm-hmm. even height is actually pretty complicated um you know and again there's a lot of you know so and again this isn't they're not probably my guess like i can't imagine that you know they're doing any kind of editing on mm-hmm. these things mm-hmm. they're just probably looking at what the sequences are and you know picking the one with, that has the blonde hair. Um, but the problem is because they're doing that, they're not looking at the billion other genes. So who knows if that one with the blonde hair is going to end up better or like far, you know, who knows what the rest of the genes are going on in that one. Um, so, you know, I don't know, be careful what you, uh, what you wish for maybe. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, (laughs) Americans will pay for a lot of things. Public information and involvement, because, as you know in California, I think we suspect now at least Wired says so <laughs> is that the technology movement kind of got going really fast before rules and regulations were put in place yeah. and now we have things like you know Russian interference on in the election, facebook or google whatever uh and now the view is that we can't get this cat back in the mm. in the bag right. So yeah. if you were to say there was any kind of process or thought we should give to some level of public involvement or information about this, any ideas there?
2: Boy, um, you know, I'll, I think in a funny way, I'm going to start by backing up a bit and say this is one of the hardest things always, which is, I was, you know, this stuff is legitimately moving kind of fast. You, you know, we just had a breakthrough. You can't do much about the fact that there was this breakthrough around CRISPR Um and then, you know, to be, you know, to give Jennifer Doudna, who was, you know, created this, her, cre- her due, she's been very aggressive about trying to think about the ways this could be used, the ethical implications, you know, one concern is that there might be, you know, kind of a... Um, a class system around who can afford, you know, genetic modification for their children. So then you have really a biological class system. Um, there's dual use stuff. Could these things be weapons? Um, you know, so there's, there's sort of all these things. Um, and so she's, you know, she's trying to do that, but I will say uh, as someone who talks about science a lot, and you people are the wonderful exception, it's actually deathly hard to get the, pa- the public to care about anything before it's really there, right? So you come out, you know, like, I'm actually writing an article about this gene drive stuff right now, and I feel like I'm kind of like, all right, everybody, we should probably be paying attention to this. And I think everyone's going to start reading that and be like, no, nah, I don't feel like it, um, you know, and just move on to like the lighter article. Um, and, you know, and I've got a nice platform for it. I've got the New York Times Magazine, um, you know, but a lot of this stuff, it's just, it's really hard to get people engaged. And so what it becomes is kind of a war between Um, you know, the side that kind of thinks, oh, this is very important. We want to do it. And then there's usually some sort of, you know, opposition or activist group that really thinks this is a terrible idea and we shouldn't do it. And the problem with that is that it becomes so black and white. And so you don't get the kind of nuanced discussion. Like I was saying about GMOs, you don't get the kind of nuanced discussion about like, well, here are some realistic concerns. Here are some realistic, you know, potential advantages. Here are all the things we need to watch out for before we proceed, um, but we just don't – we don't have a great regulatory environment and um, I can't even imagine what the process would look like if it were democratic because, you know, I do look at this stuff, you know, professionally and I can't understand the technical details of half of it. Um, so how how is everybody in the, in the world supposed to vote on whether they want to go ahead with, you know, with this stuff, right? Um, and it would take – a you know, it's not that people couldn't do it, but it would take a lot of work. People would have to sit down. They'd have to study a little bit. They'd really have to understand it. And, you know, most of us are just busy, you know. So I think that's where it really becomes something that we need regulators. We need regulators to make, you know, to who are informed to make these decisions on our behalf, unfortunately.
1: Okay. Let me warn my audience to get prepared for your questions. I have one more, but there's a mic in the back and uh, you can line up. So get your uh, questions ready here. Uh, so, uh, Thinking about the, the long, and this is this is very difficult to do, but I, I just noticed that um, in the last year, uh, people who got involved in 23andMe, Ancestry.com, <laughs> whatever, uh, all of a sudden didn't realize that, mm. that that database is being used by the police mm. to now identify and solve crimes that have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it appears now that... Um, if they just get a, just your genetic marker, mm-hmm. they can track through your family, probably figure out where you live. I mean, a lot of things are going on here. So uh, are we really underestimating what could happen here in terms of that being an example of 10 years out, What what was going on?
2: Well, I mean, it's a good question. I think we're facing the same question in kind of everything right now. Like, we're, we're giving our personal information, you know, so much of it all the time. Um, and that include, that might include our DNA. Um, but it also includes, you know, Facebook. It includes sort of everything, right? So we're putting a lot of the stuff out there and, you know, things are getting increasingly smart at, you know, hooking up, you know, making connections between, um, I mean, it, you know, someday to take it to the terrible conclusion, it's not just the way that your email you know, program seems to know what you bought, like, why does it know I need a toothbrush? Why, you know, like, it's just, it's mysterious, right? How's it reading my mind? Um But, you know, maybe someday it'll be able to link it with your DNA and sort of say, oh, by the way, I see you have an elevated risk for breast cancer, you know, would you like to, I mean, that would be, it seems mm-hmm. awful to mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. Um You know, so it's good for all of us to be sort of mindful of that, for sure. And, you know, mm-hmm. um we, we are putting a lot of trust that this stuff is not going to be Misused, and um, increasingly it just seems like it's uh it's susceptible to that
1: i mean, could, could we imagine a world in which, for example, um, through this process there's a cure for a certain disease? Mm. Uh, you go to your doctor, he says you have a tendency for this, and your insurance company says, "Hey, by the way, right. if you don't get this stuff uh, we're not going to insure you anymore
2: mhm yeah, and when actually that, and you know, that's almost the good scenario because it's assuming there's something you can do. You know, the concerning part is if they just are able to look at your DNA and then decide based on that that they don't want to insure you at all. Um, so that's a real concern.
1: Okay, okay.
2: And that's again, hopefully you'd have the, the, regulation. The <laughs> mic is open. Let
1: me remind people this is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, if, if you don't ask questions, I believe I have a few more, but it uh, looks like we have someone coming to the mic. Please make your question very direct.
0: Okay, I guess um, you know one of the things that that worries me about the CRISPR and the genetic editing is that it's the IVF mm-hmm. clinics that exist here in this country who are totally unregulated. Mm-hmm. You know, they since all most of them are private pay, um, you know, they don't need to publish. They, there's no accountability for what occurs in those fertility yep. clinics, and as far as I know, that's the only branch of medicine hmm. that there is no accountability for what's occurring, what happens, what ends up. And you know, I I think in terms of advocacy, yeah. in terms of a you know movement, a. Um, I would think that we should all be outraged by that, you know, because this is a maternal child health issue, and um, that we ought to be out there in the streets um, saying that they need to be regulated um, and accountable for what occurs in their clinics. I mean,
2: you know, one thing that's true is that um, there's all kinds of private medical, you know, clinics. You can get plastic surgery done, you know, there's all kinds of places that aren't. Um, you know, subject to anything except, you know, they have to be accredited and then, um, which the IVS clinics do too, and then you can sue them if they screw something up. So, you know, that actually is out there. But, I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of you're right in the sense that once we get enter this, you know, germline editing era for embryos, um, you know, presumably there would be something that would be great if we could actually have it apply to these private clinics. If anyone did it, there would actually be real repercussions, right? Um, but I I haven't seen that so far. You know what I see is guidelines, um, and I think what we would need is maybe an administration that was taking the lead on this quite strongly, um, and I'm not sure when that would happen.
1: Next question, please.
2: My my question and my concern is about um, ramifications of an agricultural revolution increasing food. We had an agricultural. Av- agricultural revolution in i think it was the 50s or something and um for a long time people were eating well but we have considered to continue to populate the earth so there's well actually i think it's water that's going to be the problem but there are a lot of ramifications for increasing the food supply it doesn't just simply end there have any comments well, I don't think increasing the food supply is the problem. I don't think any of us would choose to self-limit um, the population of the globe by just starving people, you know, right? That's um, the ramification. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we can, you know, we have ways to, you know, we have um, birth control. We have things that, you know, can, you know, we can sort of discuss and talk about population issues. Um Growing more food does potentially come at a cost. For instance, if you're cutting down, you know, trees to grow more crops and stuff like that, that's a real issue. Um, but then that's again probably more about you know smart choices. You know, right now a lot of that land is being cut down um, to do stuff like create grazing land for cattle. So again, if we just cut down on you know meat consumption, that by itself would do a lot. So,
1: great, thank you. Next question, please. I have one small question and. A little longer question. Uh, you you kind of touched upon uh, that this is
0: way more complicated right now for complex beings like mm-hmm. ourselves. How long before we are able to develop something for ourselves?
2: You mean, are you thinking about humans gene know. editing? The yes. Humans. Yeah, but, but what? Develop what? Develop... Um, uh, maybe start off with cosmetics or health um yeah so like like for instance can you, are you thinking of like the say the babies like can we really uh you know when can we how soon will we be able to create an edit yeah in, um, or change my eye color
0: or increase my height oh, i see
2: what you're saying well so in an adult um most of these things we actually won't be able to do you know it's um gene therapy isn't without risk and you know you wouldn't want to attempt to change the color of you know of your eyes um you know, given the risk that would entail it's easier to wear colored contacts if that 's what you want to do, you know so there's a lot of stuff where it just won 't make sense and also, I should be clear that for gene therapy that one of the biggest challenges is not um you know you can take cells out and edit them great, really not too hard these days what 's extremely hard is getting them back in and getting them to do the job they want they're supposed to do so with sickle cell that 's comparatively easy because you can access bone marrow. That's what makes the blood cells. And so then when you can edit it, you can get it back in, and then it makes the new blood cells. How are you going to do that with the piece of the brain? You're going to take some brain out, and then how are you going to get it to spread to the rest of the brain? Mm. Right? So there's a lot of stuff we can't do. And even in lung, you might think, oh, we could I could take a piece of the lung out, and it, I wouldn't miss that maybe. But then how do you get it to proliferate? How do you get it to go into the rest of the lung? Um, so those are the kinds of problems that they're trying to solve right now. So that's actually one of the big things that – um, you know, it doesn't actually, funnily, it doesn't have to do with CRISPR. It has to do with this other stuff. How do you get stuff back into the body and get it to do the job it needs to do? So what are three
1: use cases that you are excited about that are not related to medicines or agriculture? <laughs>
2: um, oh, that's a tough one. So I was going to say that there is all kinds of uh, um, exciting stuff related to, um, to medicine. There's actually a mutation in um, uh, I'm just going to add this one in for free. There's a mutation that exists in some people from um, Iceland and Scandinavia, um, or at least of Icelandic and Scandinavian descent, um, that makes them really resistant to Alzheimer's. Um, they just don't build up the amyloid protein the same way. Um, so that's pretty compelling, um, honestly. That's that's the one I got excited about when I was reading about it recently. And there's another similar one about that, uh some people just have naturally low cholesterol, and so you can also, you know, like these. These are the kinds of things that are actually really. Potentially appealing about that kind of either genetic or germline engineering. Um, three examples of um, other stuff that's not medical or agricultural. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna. Th- I'll think about that one. Let me see what I can yeah. come up with. But those are the ones that came to my mind.
1: Next question, please.
0: Hi. Um, I was wondering, do you think that it's possible in the foreseeable future to have more of an industry of gene editing for maybe future generations or just gene therapies like that, a much larger industry?
2: I mean, I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, right now, a lot of this stuff is still in the lab. Um, so, I guess when you think of industry what you know what how would you define it
0: I guess in m- most of what i 'm wondering about is do you think there 's going to be a rise of maybe designer babies or um, something closer to maybe editing ourselves not as a baby necessarily, but once we 're older, do you think it 's likely
2: you know I think we get back to that problem of right now i 'm sure there is going to be people who are going to want to you know modify a baby somehow like have a like modify an embryo and have that grow into a human um but i think if nothing else like this is really we're going to see probably some unpleasant cases along with cases that are neutral or successful um and i think that will pretty quickly um make clear the risks of this hopefully people will just also know the risks of this and that you know some of the regulation will cut in um so i i don't know but uh you know, I, I hope that doesn't rush mm-hmm. forward too soon.
1: Yeah, let yeah. me squeeze in a follow-up to that one, because I, in the Bay Area, because of the fantastic wealth here, uh, we have people mm-hmm. who are freezing their embryos yeah. because they don't want to have a baby until they're 40. Mm-hmm. But that may be 10, 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 10 or 15 years from now, what could they possibly do with a frozen embryo if there is more advances in gene editing?
2: I mean, the key will be we can do the gene editing. The key is how much do we know about what the effects and side effects are going to be? Because right now it's really a crapshoot you know, you're going to change something. This is even assuming you can do the edit without kind of screwing it up the, the way, you know, like, as happened with the twins a little bit. Um, it didn't screw up terribly, but screwed up a bit. So one, screwing up. That's not great, right? You don't want a kind of technique that's like, oh, whoops, I happened to stick something a little bit in the wrong place, right? You don't want that for your embryo. Um, but the the probably just like the bigger thing is, we really, it's so delicate and complicated how all these things interact. Um, it's not even just a gene. The genes interact with other genes. There are epigenetic layers. Like some genes, all they do is turn up the volume or down, you know, on a gene. So like a gene produces a particular protein. Um, it's not changing the protein it produces, but it changes a lot how, how much it produces, right? Sometimes that causes disease. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it cures disease. Um, so when you're kind of fiddling around with this, right? Sometimes it's pretty straightforward, but almost all the time there's going to be all, all these other things that can happen. Um, and I think I just you know, what, what I really wish is that people would just be aware of that because it's, it sort of seems so tantalizing. Oh, I can just push a button, change this thing, and then you know, this is fixed. But you don't realize that pushing that button is you know, pushing 10,000 other buttons. Um, yeah. So, yeah.
0: Next question. Yes. I, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning about the CRISPR technology being Uh, cheap and generally widely available and also what you said about mosquitoes Mm -hmm. and malaria and i want to turn it turn it around are you concerned about weaponizing (laughs) technology as for example instead of uh decreasing the uh, the incidence of malaria increasing it and then releasing that a terrorist or a nihilist could easily do that
2: yeah no that's a really good question um so I guess one thing I will say just as a bit of consolation for all of us is that um, this gene drive technology is it's really hard. Um, so, you know, again, it's not that hard to make a mosquito that, say, doesn't get malaria. It actually is kind of hard, but it's not that hard. Um, but this thing of getting it to spread, um, you know, nature is really tuned. Um, and so the thing that the people who are trying to get rid of malaria are worried about, they're not worried that this is going to spread, you know, too fast or something. They're worried it's not going to spread at all. Um, because there's going to be a lot of evolutionary pushback against it. You know, the parasite wants to keep going, you know, all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff we just don't even, you know, mosquitoes might breed in this little pocket, so you get it to spread there, and then the next mosquitoes are over a hill. And guess what? Those mosquitoes don't even get it. Um, So it actually, in some ways, turns out to be harder than you'd think to make this kind of, you know like devastating spread that said there is some stuff that's really good at spreading, you know, rats for instance, seem to get everywhere. Um, So, you know, if, what if you could engineer a rat um, that would carry something that we really don't like or something that would devastate agriculture, you know, that's a legitimate thing we have to worry about. Um, Again, the main consolation is that it's, this is pretty hard to do. So you, it probably almost certainly would not be a terrorist actor, it would be a nation state. So it would be something, you know, Russia conceivably could undertake a project like this. Um, And that's, you know, we shouldn't disregard that. Um, You know, But it's very unlikely that, you know, a small terrorist organization, rather than just bombing something or using chemical weapons, we've got all this, you know, disastrous stuff. They're not going to sit there and be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a lab. I'm going to start this basic research program. And then maybe 20 years from now, I'm going to have, you know, so it's just, there's easier ways to kill people if that's your...
1: Next, cool. please.
0: So. <laughs> um, you touched upon the implications of Monsanto and gene editing mm-hmm. and, like, um, kind of the bad rep that has um, ensued. And I was wondering um, what other implications that gene editing could have for agriculture, if any, and as a result,
2: how you would propose testing that and what the implications could be. Um, so, are you asking, like, I'm oh, sorry, just to clarify, um, <laughs> are you saying, like, if we um, did gene edited crops mm-hmm. sort of, are you saying what are, what are the risks or what are the public yeah, perception? Yeah, what, what, what
0: are the, what are the, not public perception, okay. but what are the overall risks that could happen, like aside from a Monsanto in terms of type for industry benefit? Yeah, yeah. And then as a result, like how would you propose testing what those, like, implications could be?
2: Yeah. Um well I mentioned like sort of the GMO example of like the peanut and stuff but if we're just taking genetic engineering right then we just have um you know say you have uh again a tomato that you want to be sweeter right so you modify um a gene to make it a little sweeter and then usually what you have to do is you just have to go through your whole regulatory process yeah. so you you know this is still a regulatory process right so we still have to go through it so if you you know make a different tomato um You'll want to make sure that there's you know like you'll want to do safety testing that you know usually means that you you, know, you sequence the tomato's genes you make sure that there's nothing else weird has been added to it um, you feed it to various things to make sure you know nothing gets sick you just make sure it's safe right you know, honestly most of these changes. Um, are probably not even really going to have that risk if you just add a little thing for sweetness, but it is something. Like, there, you know, ideally that's going to be very rigorous. And that's at the FDA level. That's at the, you know, eating it level. Um, there's a whole separate thing. The person who's making the blueberry tomatoes I was talking about, she's actually making them as tomato juice because it turns out the difference between the USDA and the FDA is if there are seeds. And so if you're making a tomato juice to sell, then you're just making, um, like a genetically modified food product, right? So, you just have to make sure it's safe for people to drink. And then in this case, it has more antioxidants. If you want to grow those tomatoes, they have viable seeds. Then you have to go through an extremely expensive process with the USDA. Um, so she was going to send me some seeds, but she's like, do you have a, you know, a contained greenhouse? Cause it's basically illegal for me to grow those, you know, tomatoes. Um, so that's sort of, you know, those are two separate things. And so that's something that we'll, you know, have to sort out at some point at this point, probably the re- the regulations are so restrictive and expensive Um that basically nobody, no small, you know, anything is going to put these forward. Um, And so, I mean, one downside of that is you get fewer blueberry tomatoes and more things like Monsanto making, you know, seeds that can resist herbicides.
1: Next question. I was wondering about, what about um, drug design and Mm. discovery and so forth?
2: You know, I don't know a lot in general about drug design and discovery, but in terms of how it relates to CRISPR, um, one thing they can do is they can create what are called cellular factories. Um, so if you need to produce a drug, um, and this, I'm going to blink on the good examples, but you know, there are things like artem- artemisinin, there's like drugs that you really would want as like an antimalarial or whatever it would be. And they're very hard and expensive or cumbersome to produce, right? Um, or maybe they require, you know, using living things in a way you don't like. And so there's actually a thing called a cellular factory where you can, you know, just kind of modify bacteria, for instance, and they'll just churn that stuff out for you. Um, they'll turn out, it's like a chemical that they'll just make for you. Um, and so that's a really wonderful application of, um, you know, genetic engineering that we don't really think about because it's not something, you know, it's not a food we eat. Um, it's not a human being that we're modifying. Um, but that's actually a bunch of that is going on already.
1: Great. Next question. Uh, what are the um, biggest updates that you'd like to see considered in the regulatory system so there's more ethical or proactive around this whole
2: world? You know, what I miss is, um, There used to be an Office of Technology Assessment, uh, and that was basically an office that was responsible for keeping the government up to date on all the really big, important technological developments. And so it was something that regulators could, (laughs) it was something that regulators could actually, you know, like look at. Yeah. So a government agency could say, wait, we really need to know about this. Please tell me about this. Um, and so now, you know, that got disbanded a while ago. And so now I think, you know, what you've got are these just kind of, you know, agencies scrambling, scattering, trying to pull together. This is happening kind of globally. So I would actually, probably one of the first things I would like to see was just a a reinstatement of that so we can have, you know, when we actually are sort of say, all right, this is something we need to understand, you know, and then regulate, um, you know, they actually have a reliable source where they're not kind of going, you know, going to he said, she said. When I think about my children and uh my grandchildren um in the future I picture this world that's very scary because you've yeah. got global warming, climate change. Um San is probably going to be underwater. I'll never we'll never be able to go to the Maldives. Um is can this gene editing help us and yeah. save the world? Oh, oh. Um, I wish. Uh, You know, I think to me, the most interesting thing here is, um, you know, there's a book called The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles Mann, um, which I recommend to folks if you haven't read it. But the main thing, the key thing I'm going to pull from that is that in general, there's kind of two camps of people. There are people who kind of, when faced with kind of looming issues like this, you know, whether it's antibiotic resistance or, you know, climate change or whatever, people who sort of want to go, go back, they want to slow things down, you know, we need to just kind of, um, you know, live more simply, use less energy, um, you know, kind of really go, go back kind of pause things. And then there's a different camp of people who think that, in the end, one, that won't work. And two, you know, kind of humanity, it doesn't work that way. You know, we're ultimately about progress and none of us wants to go back to eating a lot less, not using electric lights, um, you know, because that takes coal or whatever it is. You know, we are probably, many of us drive fairly consistently and, you know, it's just, or we fly somewhere because we want to travel and we don't want to give that up. So then you kind of think, well, what's the way out? And then the the answer is often more technology. Um, So... It can feel like an interesting bind when you feel like the problem is caused by technology. And then there's this kind of like the solution is technology, right? And I think for most of us these days, you know, there's something kind of aversive about technology. Like, you know, we're really seeing the dark side of it. And we think it's very tempting to be like, ugh, you know, I don't want any part of this. But what I worry is that it's a fantasy to think that we can decide that. Um, You know, sort of the fact that we have antibiotic resistance now, it's bad, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have invented antibiotics. Um, So that's that's the question.
1: Next question. Hi, um, so how do you think Big Ag could earn the public's trust back? Like you said, you know, everyone remembers GMOs, but this is a potential solution. So what would your advice be?
2: Man, that is so above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> big Ag earning people's trust back. Um, you know, uh, people are trying to do that right now, actually, and they're trying to do it with gene drives. And one of the things, unfortunately, that that involves is having Big Ag stay out of it. Um, which is that there is a potential application of gene drive, um, which is for, you know, so this gene drive is the thing I talked about that it could potentially, you know, really minimize malaria in places, right? It spreads the anti-malarial trait through the mosquitoes, for instance. Um, but one of the things that's making that possible is that no company with a profit motive has immediately come in. So a, another potential application of gene drive is um, you know, we have these fruit flies that are really devastating, um, you know, to the berry crop cherries and berries and stuff like that. Um, it's called Drosophila Suzuki. Um, and the, the problem is they lay their eggs, I've got this little overpositor thing that they stick their, like spike into a cherry, and then they lay their eggs in that and then it causes the fruit to rot. So what if you could just change those things and make them lay their eggs on the surface of the cherry, right, or something like that, that would be nice. Um but, you know, that, again, gets very complicated. Do we want to change, you know, potentially a, a species, you know, out of its natural behavior, if we even can? Um, you know, for, you know, it, it would cause less food waste, but there's also kind of, you know, it really invokes profit motives. So part of the answer is, um, you know, I really appreciate the patience that big ag is having actually around that right now. No one is actually stepping in. They're allowing kind of gene drive to do its thing rather than kind of pulling a Monsanto. Um, But beyond that, uh, I guess I would say, I mean, the well is fairly poisoned around GMOs, but I think, um, yeah, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a hard question, frankly. Yeah. I feel bad.
1: Okay. This is a program of the Commonwealth club for our listening audience. I'm going to squeeze in our last question because I think it's been sort of sitting in the room in a lot of these uh, questions here, which is, it appears that in this country, maybe in the world, that we're going to wait to the commercial applications of this stuff. Uh, Can we buy it? Does it make a profit? What does it do? Does it make us prettier? Make our food taste better? So are we just sitting here like ducks? Because the only way we can think of anything is, is it a product in the marketplace? Hmm.
2: Well, you know, the, I'll say most of the scientists are genuinely not thinking that way. Um, you know, for the rest of us, um, I probably think it's—I'm not even sure—it's so much about a product, but I think it is true that it's—you uh, know, like I was saying, it's—it's it's sometimes hard to get really interested in this stuff, um, especially when it's complicated. Before it's really pressing, before it suddenly has come to a boil, um, you know, kind of like with the CRISPR babies, right? And so, you know, insofar as we can get out ahead of that at all, um, it's great. Insofar as we can think about what we want, you know, what our priorities are, that's probably the biggest thing, honestly, is, you know, be honest about this. Think about, you know, all right, like this is, you know, I sort of encourage everyone as you go home, take the thing you believe. If you believe, man, genetic engineering, save the world, let's just not even put on the brakes, let's go, 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 Right. Or if you think the opposite, you know, um, if you uh, if you think the opposite that, you know, oh, I absolutely hate this idea. I hate the technology. It's terrifying. Um, you know, think about what the implications of that are going to be globally as well. Because um, I think that's the thing, in order to not be sitting ducks for these technologies, we really need to, that's what we need to be going through. We don't need to understand all the technical details, but we need to really consider like the costs on on yeah, both sides. Yes.
1: And right. maybe there's a middle ground in there somewhere. Yeah, right? there, okay.
2: yeah, may, maybe there is. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> All right, please join me in thanking Jennifer Kahn for a fantastic presentation and this meeting in the Camelot Club. <laughs> Thank you.